the economics of loyalty were extraordinary. The wow statistic was that you increase the retention rate in a, in a typical industry by five points, say from 85% retention to 90% retention, and you will increase the net present value of the customers by 25 to 100%. So, you know, a doubling of your customer value. And it made me fixate on retention, which is a good thing. But there's so many other benefits from loyal customers. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way, to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Fred Reichelt. You probably know Fred. He invented NPS, the Net Promoter System, Net Promoter Score. But I first came across Fred's work when I was doing an MBA, and he'd written a paper in the Harvard Business Review in 1990, Zero Defections, it's called, Quality Comes to Services. And in that book, he he did some calculations. And he said, look, if you've got a retention, customer retention rate of 85%, and you get it 5% better, get it to 90%, well, then your profitability might grow by somewhere between 25 and 100%. So retention is a huge point of leverage for profitability in the inside organizations. And he thought he just needed to tell people that. And his job was done. But later on, he had to invent the net promoter score so that people could then try and measure this thing that drives retention. What are promoters? Would you recommend company X to a friend or colleague? And then still, that was 2004. And still here we are, you know, 20 years later, and the world is still arguing about net promoter score. So he's written a new book. He's written a new book called Winning on Purpose. The Unbeatable Strategy of Loving Customers. So we're going to talk a bit about Net Promoter Score and we're going to talk a bit about the new book. And what he's done is he has now come up with a more accountancy-based metric, earned revenue, earned growth, which is a combination of the customers that hang around and spend more money and the people they refer or, or the way in which people find you based on reputation. And as he says when we're talking, look, he found a bank that could do this. And if a bank could do this, anybody could do this. So fantastic conversation with Fred. It's brilliant to chat to him, having taken his work and used it to huge success at Rackspace, IT Lab, Pier One, and, and use it probably every day with clients and to see how it's impacted their businesses. So great to talk to Fred. I'm sure you'll love the conversation. I'm Fred Reicheld, longtime Bain partner and now fellow and senior advisor 
the uh, the inventor of the net promoter system and uh, and of uh, the earned growth rate. And the the earned growth rate is the the subject of your new book. Uh, a big part of it, I'd say, the subject is a, a an extension of all the other books I've written, which is how do you earn the loyalty of your your customers and your employees? And the earned growth rate is just a uh, I think an important advance for for putting next to net promoter score, so that we have a a uh, net promoter is a survey based score, which has uh, strengths and weaknesses. Earned growth is the accounting twin, which makes both stronger. Which means people can't game their score. Much harder to game. You can game your accounting. You know, you go to jail if you get caught. But <laughs> game, you know, you can't stop people from trying. It, it, it seems. I was I was saying to you just before we started recording that you know I'd read your. 1990 Harvard Business Review paper, Zero Defections. Were you doing customer loyalty stuff in Bain before that? I mean, have you been, do- have you been doing customer loyalty forever? I joined uh, Bain in 1977 and, it, you know, within the first few years had figured out that there were certain companies that were just special. Some were big, some were small, but they were all generating way more cash and growing faster than, than the traditional economics and strategy models could explain. And the, the common denominator was that they were earning the loyalty of customers and employees. And it led down a path of, gee, what's going on with the economics? That was my first book. And then, well, how do you earn those economics? Well, it's a leadership thing. So the second book was about leadership. And then I came to the recognition that we actually don't have an accounting and measurement system that lets leaders really do this effectively, especially global diversified companies. So I invented net promoter score and now earned growth to help companies put these ideas into place and be able to delegate and hold people accountable. Talk me through the the genesis of net the net promoter system. Because you did so, you did some tests. Yeah, well, we, you know the economics of loyalty were extraordinary. The wow statistic was that you increase the retention rate in a in a typical industry by five points, say from. 85% retention to 90% retention, and you will increase the net present value of the customers by 25 to 100%. So, you know, a doubling of your customer value, which of course, you know, if you're an economist or a finance guy, that's twice the cash flow that's coming out of these customers just by changing your retention by five points. And people didn't understand that. And, and it made me fixate on retention, which is a good thing. But there's so many other benefits from loyal customers. They give you referrals. They treat your employees better. They, their share of wallet grows up. You know, they're just all sorts of advantages. And retention was not the right focal point for measurement because that led people down a path of, uh, oh, let's trap our customers. Let's, let's make it really hard to leave. We're going to have an account closing fee, which, which completely missed the point. So I, I thought, how are we going to get real contemporary insights about, you know, no, I'm, I'm stuck with this software, enterprise software. I hate it, but I'm not going anywhere else. How do you make it clear that they're not happy? And, and, and so we looked for a survey question. One question, because I hate surveys, and if, well, if you have to have a survey, make it real short. And we just tested for what the right question was that was the best indicator of someone's real happiness that you've enriched their life. And likelihood to recommend was the winner by a mile. So that's the net, the, the, the basis of likelihood to recommend as a question. 
I mean, it's not a recommendation system, it's a net promoter system, but recommend is a really good signal of you have enriched a life. Going back to, I mean, going back to retention and those, you know, because often people say things to me all the time, like, you know, oh, it's, it's easier to grow your revenue from an existing customer than to win a new one. And they have no idea that they're looking at, in their heads, they've got some bastardized version of that paper that you wrote, but they still then don't do anything with it. Is, you know, is it odd to you that you create a piece of work and you take it to the world and to you, it's just so obvious and then either people misinterpret it or just don't listen. Yeah, it's, I've been surprised. Um, I thought I could retire after my first book. <laughs> my work here is done. And it just, it, it's amazing how hard it is to get people to change their mindset. Showing them how to get rich isn't enough. Showing them how to live a better life isn't enough. You just, uh, there's got a lot of changes in everything we do. And in, in business, we measure ourselves on accounting, which has an implicit objective function of profits. And so if you're going to use accounting metrics as your primary gauge of success, and it's how you allocate capital, and it's how you set budgets and how you reward your employees, it, that, that accounting mindset is just deeply embedded in people in a way they're not even aware of it. And, and when you say, oh, wait, profits is a downstream benefit of loving your customers. It's a multi-decade journey, and we've made an amazing progress. You know, two-thirds of the world seems to use this net promoter score that I invented. <laughs> they don't use it well, but it's a step. They've heard of it, and, and they're starting to get serious about it. And there are some great exemplars who really do understand it, and they've continued to prosper. That's why my stock portfolio is tripled the stock market over the last decade. I I never looked at one financial statistic. I just looked at the net promoter score of each company in an industry. And when someone had really stepped away from the pack and their customers loved them, I invested in them. And, and that simple strategy has made me rich. And, and yet still, all these people are out there saying, oh, this is snake oil. It's the worst thing I've ever heard of. You know, it's just, there's there's crazy people everywhere. The criticisms of MPS must land at your door. Eventually, yeah. Although <laughs> it, it's sort of, uh, it's, it, I need to have a good sense of humor. I owe those guys everything because I came out with this ho-hum piece of work that said, treat your customers right. That's the way to succeed. And that's boring news, right? I mean, who, Jesus thought that one up. And, and, and you know, Jesus knew that before Jesus did. There, It's like, how can you make that newsworthy? Well, these critics, they, they got all uh, you know hot and bothered about it. And so people paid attention to something that otherwise would have been the most boring news. It would have been on the back page of some uh, uh, accounting journal or something. It's funny because when I meet somebody, I, 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 met, I met somebody recently and they said, oh no, we tried Net Promoter Score, but it didn't work for us. And you just think, what part of treating your customers well didn't work for you? That, that you couldn't, that you're trying to rip them off and they know who you are it just yeah, i try i've tried to solve this by saying you know there's a little nps and there's a big nps big nps is customers come first that's your primary purpose love customers is the only way to win the the, the only way to deliver shareholder value over time is to be an exceptional lover of customers that's big nps it's a philosophy and a uh, 
an investment reality. And then the little NPS is this, it's the system, you know, for, we started by looking at retention and then we said, no, we need a survey. So likelihood to recommend is the nicest one question survey. And now we're in digital world. So there are digital signals and click throughs and hang time. These signals can all help you understand the core goal is to enrich a life of a customer and, and to know when you've done it. And when you've failed, when you've diminished the life of a customer, and, and then a set of systems and processes to, to close the loop and learn why and figure out what you're going to do better and test those as, as hypotheses with, with real data. That, that's the little NPS. It's very important. But when people say, I don't believe in NPS or I tried it, it's like, really? Love thy neighbor as thyself doesn't work? Well, yeah, it doesn't if you have really evil jerks as customers, but that doesn't mean it doesn't work. Just get rid of the jerks and start doing business with good people. Is it possible to do the little the little one if you don't believe in the big one? Yeah, that's what that's what two thirds of the world is doing. They don't they do it, and it has some value. I, I shouldn't diminish it. The, measuring this makes more people aware when they have enriched a life and when they've diminished it. That's a good thing. But the system itself without the context of the mindset of customers are the right purpose of what's why a business should exist. I I guess the most radical thing I found in preparing this book is only 10% of business executives agree with that idea. They think that 10% would say customers are the primary purpose for our business. Stunning to me that that something so obviously correct is only agreed to by 10% of the world. And now with the economic part of my book, there's a pretty strong case that 90% of the world is now em- embraces a purpose that is guaranteed to lose because only customers first is, is the winning long-term success. See what that, uh, that has that the meek will inherit the earth springs to mind. Do you know, it's like, I'm glad it, well, I'm not, I'm not glad it's only 10%, but like if everybody believed it, there would be no competitive advantage in being good to your customers. Yeah. You, I mean, this no, a notion of the, <laughs> I think the uh, you know Sermon on the Mount is pretty cool. It's not like it's a new idea. They're, I think one of the other gospel writers called it the Sermon on the Plain. But these guys were these, they were writing to different audiences. The, I think the, the guy who did the uh, the famous Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, and and the, the vision of on a mount you know Mount Sinai. This this is this is how you win this audience. It's awfully impressive. But this one line from that sermon, the meek shall inherit the earth, I thought, this is bogus. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I, uh, uh, maybe a lightning is going to strike me and I'll go to hell, but I just can't buy that. And I was complaining about that to a minister friend of mine, a, a real a theology a student of, of uh, the Bible and of uh, of all elements of theology. He says, oh, Fred, give me a break. It, it, that was just one of those creative uh what do you not interpretation, but a translation of uh, the scribes that were doing the King James Bible? They were really going for poetic meter, and the meek shall inherit the earth. Is you know that really rings beautifully. the it, the real The real translation from the Greek or the Aramaic or whatever it was was the humble shall inherit the earth, and it doesn't have the uh, you know the it doesn't scan quite as well, but it's it makes a lot more sense. Well, it does, particularly if you look at like Jim Collins saying level five leaders, one of the definitions of it, one of his things around level five leaders is they have humility. Uh, the final chapter of winning on purpose is be humble. I think it's 
It's not the only thing you have to do as a great leader, but it's the one thing that screws up most of them. Because if you've been successful, the thing that gets you and destroys your business is this lack of humility about how hard it is to keep listening to customers and figuring out how to wow them and be remarkable. And the instant you stop listening and stop working hard at making sure your organization stays humble and and does not feel entitled or uh, proud that they you know they're the best and they've won that and 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 that they just focus on their own you know I why do you do business to get rich that's just such a flawed idea you do business to be of service to your customer and to help your teams lead lives of meaning and purpose through enriching customers lives and most employees even in great businesses today they don't get that and so leaders have to really be teachers and 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 there's a long way to go and what um what are your best examples of businesses where the employees do see that link between the job that they do and yeah there's a lot of examples in the book um you know not european examples so i'm not sure if your audience will relate but costco oh yeah we've got costco over here well costco is one of the heavily used examples in the book because the founder believes in these principles. He, he, you know, he, he lives them. The company continues to live them probably 15 or 20 years after he stepped down as CEO. The people, when I interview the people that work in a, in a Costco, they like it for the most part. They, you know, retail's hard and you're on your feet all the time and you got to deal with the public but within the reality of that job, they like it and they feel like the company is, a, they're proud to work for it. They stay, they're, they're, you know, the turnover is tiny at Costco compared to similar retailers. And I had, uh, well, just to give you a sense of the caliber of person they hire, I went, I almost never returned stuff, but I did. I, I had a, something was, oh, it was a winter jacket and it was, I returned it. And uh, I asked the lady, this must be a really tough time of year to be working this. She says, no, I really feel like I'm in a lucky place. You know, we, we're so generous with our returns and we treat our customers so well and our policies are so differentiated versus the competition. And it's a great place to work. But with this COVID thing, um, it is true. You have more customers that are just really on edge and ready to blow up. And she said, for instance, a guy... A guy came in the other day. It was a regular customer, but I'd seen him before. And he couldn't get the all-around pizza that, that everyone wants to order. I mean, we were out of the ingredients. And it, he just blew up. He lost it. And, he, and she said, we know it's not about us. It's about his life. There's other stuff going on. And it was like a minister or a pre, you know, explaining in an, in an understanding way about how our job is to help everyone through the difficulties of life. And I think, wow, this is the return lady to Costco. This is impressive. But what character that they they bring in and keep? Because, you know, they get it that the whole idea is to be doing business with good people and to help them make their lives better. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I used to deal with them as a supplier years ago when I used to sell gold and diamond jewelry. And they were a great company to supply to. You know, they have a rep of being too tough on their vendors. And I I was having lunch with the CEO at the time of Procter & Gamble, the big uh, consumer products company. And I said, is that right? Is Costco really a lousy customer? And, you know, we weren't on the record. So he, he was being honest. And uh, 
And he said, no, no, I, I think they're excellent. They're really demanding, but they are honest and they live by the golden rule. Um, so he said, no, this is, you know, and the stories you read about are tiny little companies who just get crushed by them. I think it's really dangerous trying to do, when you're a little company trying to do business with a big company, watch out. You know, it's, it's, it's not a good match. Yeah, it's a mismatch. They were they were difficult to do business with, but they were obsessive about making sure that if they ran a promotion, that there was real value behind that promotion to their customers. And so, you know, they, it comes it comes from the customer. It doesn't come from trying to do you down as a supplier. So their success. I mean, if you're in retailing, you sort of know about Costco, and you you write them off as a real oddball success story. And then if you're in the digital commerce world, you see Amazon, is you write them off for, oh, it's other stuff going on. And if you're in the credit card business, you see Discover, American Express for many years, but Discover is even better. And you see their total shareholder return being the best in the industry. And you, you come up with some other reason that it's an oddball one-off. But after you look at a dozen industries and you see every time the company that is just crushing it, not just for their customers, but for their employees and their investors, they have this philosophy of loving customers and putting customer interest first, you start to say, hmm, I think there's a pattern that might be a universal pattern. It's really hard to build a prosperous business that isn't based on this principle of, of taking care of your customers first and enriching their lives. It's hard though, isn't it? Of course. <laughs> right? like, I mean, that's it's what hard. competition is so cool. Luckily, a lot of companies, you just take any industry car rentals, automotive, uh, banks, hotels, 80% of the companies are just pounding their customers with bad profit tricks and traps. And, you know, you, you lose your points and promotion schemes that are gimmicky. They're not straightforward. So I think companies who really get it, yes, it's hard work to be remarkable and to innovate, but man, if you just stay away from the bad crap that's going on in most of your competitors that are profit fixated, um, you, you, people notice, your employees notice and customers notice. I stayed at a hotel in London last week and hotels and airlines, you know, can either be really awful or occasionally, because you, you, your expectation going in is always so low that you don't actually have to be you know, it doesn't have to be amazing. It almost just has to be some common humanity. Yeah. Little acts of kindness at the front desk is all that it takes to differentiate you. Totally. I turned up and the people looked like they were in a job that they enjoy doing. That's always a good, you know, it's always good to see people looking like they're enjoying themselves. And I went up, I went up to the room and they gave me a card, right? And normally the card is a pre-printed thing from the manager, which you just put in the bin. But actually it was a handwritten thing from the girls on the front desk with my name on it. You know, so obviously, and it hadn't, my name hadn't been written in later. And, and it was just, you know, it was just fab. And I went down, I said, look, can I, can I check out late? And they went, yeah, sure. When do you want to leave? I said, well, can I stay till three o'clock? And they went, yeah, sure. No problem at all. <laughs> and like, there are so many other places in the world where they go, oh no, policy's 10 o'clock. You know, we might let you, you might, well, you know, if you beg, we might let you stay till 10 30. And it's just so nice to go and stay in, in a hotel where people care. I went to Savannah to visit, visit my son over the holidays and took most of the family down. 
Uh, so it was a big crowd. We needed multiple cars. I rented from a, a auto rental company. It was a, and I got it through one of these, it's either Costco or Kayak or one of the consolidating firms. And I just said, you know, I want a car for four days, got a good deal, went down and got it $40 a day for the car. Then my plane was canceled on the way back. I needed an extra day. So I called in and said, I'm going to be late. We'll return to the airport just to where we picked it up, but I need the extra day. And they charged me where they charged me $40 a day for the uh, first four days. They charged me $130 for the final day. And, uh, and I went back and checked. They still had one day rentals available at $40 a day on that extra day, but they just found a way to abuse me and wasted an hour of my time getting angry. And I thought, wow, I'll never rent from that brand again, unless I, you know, there's no other option find a way to take it to them and really leave them high and dry. Like, oh, you're giving me unlimited mileage and only I know I'm going to the West Coast and back. <laughs> That's where I went from. But, you know, you accumulate this stuff. It doesn't show up in the accounting earnings, but it shows up over the decade of who's got customers coming back for more and recommending their friends and who's struggling like crazy with discounts and crazy deals that are very expensive to get new customers. Well, it's, it's interesting that when I was looking at your formula in the new book for earned revenue. Earned growth and earned growth, yeah. I, I could absolutely see how the referrals piece was earned growth. And what you've done is you just explained wh what you mean by reputation. So, you know, you, what, what you suggest is that when new customers come to a company, that you ask them, you know, why did they, why did they take your service? And that reputation is part of your earned as opposed to bought growth. Do you want to explain what the thinking is in the book around how this becomes more of an accountancy treatment? Well, the, the, the worst thing I saw being done with the net promoter, survey-based net, net promoter scores, is linking it to frontline bonuses. And that turns your frontline teams into, it's undignified. They, they beg for scores and plead and, or bribe you. You know, free car, car mats. I know we had a terrible negotiation with the, the car, but listen, uh, I don't get to keep my job if I don't get good scores. So here, free, free car mats, free oil changes. What does it take to get a 10? And it's, it's horrible. It's bad for the customer, bad for the employee. It makes, makes a joke out of net promoter. I used to just preach, stop doing that. And people didn't stop. They needed to hold their people accountable. They just didn't recognize in a survey-based system, it's so hard to not bias the score and the sampling is so subtle about who bothers to fill out the survey. And so I figured out I have to invent an accounting-based score that is auditable. And that led me to earn growth. And it went all the way back to really the beginning. Andy Taylor, the, the guy that built Enterprise Rent-A-Car into the largest car rental company on earth, told me, Fred, there's only one way to grow. A, a, a business it, sustainably, you, you treat your customers so they come back for more and bring their friends. And so earned growth is just literally taking Andy's words and making it into an accounting statistic. Back for more is your net revenue retention. You know, how much of your revenue is coming from existing customers coming back and buying more stuff, plus referrals, bring their friends. And you've got to be a little more creative about tracking referrals, but that's the guts of it. So earned growth is simply the stuff that 
drove Andy Taylor and Costco and Rack space. Uh, all these other great businesses to the top of the scale. You know, that's what generates the economics. And it's pretty easy to, to measure given how it takes some work, but it's incredibly valuable. And my, my pitch in the book is every company should, should be reporting this internally and probably externally that should be demanded by an intelligent investor. Because so often you'd say, I'll say to clients, you know, what, how much of your business comes through referral? They don't know. They make they up just, a number. They just have no. They just have no idea. Which is why asking them, you know, why did you come? And one option in the in the survey or in the question being, your reputation is that okay? As opposed to I saw an ad. Yeah. Now it sounds simple, but I've been wrestling with this for decades. I knew referrals were everything. That's why likelihood to recommend is the, the one question that, that best predicted repeat purchase and expanded purchases and, and, and even survey response rates go up with the, the uh, likelihood to recommend scores. But no one tracked referrals. It was always, oh, yeah, referrals are extra credit. And I'm thinking, no, it's not extra credit. It's the whole, it's the core. Um, it's the cake. It's not the icing. And, but how do you measure it? It's hard. And, and then someone, uh, it was a bank, said, you know, Fred, we actually just asked customers when we onboard them, what's the primary reason they decided to choose to do business with us? And referrals and recommendations, one of the answers. And, you know, we keep track of that. So they knew that 90% of their new business was coming from customers, either coming back for more or from these referrals, their referrals. And then I, I thought, wow, if a bank can do it, anybody <laughs> can do it. Um, and and they can you just have to decide it's important yes so i think i think that's fantastic that it will mean that those companies that want to do it properly have have something else to go like those people those 10 percent of people who believe in the philosophy will want to do it because they'll want to know what the answer is to the question well and it will distinguish them in the eyes of investors because even now there are people it's not so much for Costco because they've been doing it for so long, but even still you'll see investors, they don't get it. How can they keep growing? Costco can't keep growing, right? Well, let's look at their net promoter scores carefully, you know, apples to apples. They're still the best in, uh, in store retailing that I have found. And, but there are a lot of businesses where it's hard to capture your competitor's net promoter score. You can't do it relative, especially in business to business settings. Where what earned growth is, it gives you the ability to say, here's what our earned growth rate is. And if it's 90% of our growth is earned growth, um, that's stratospheric. And I think investors will be able to do the math better than they have done with net promoter. And partly it's because they discount self-reported net promoter scores as made up numbers. Earned growth is a little bit easier to audit and and get, get serious about. And one of the, I think I remember this correctly. One of the other statistics I remember is that when you see an industry where customers are moving from one to another, net promoter, you've been able to show that eighty-five percent of that shift is as a result of the, the net promoter differential. Well, if you really measure net promoter um, in, a, in a careful third-party way, and it's usually big customer panels, so there's no bias. There's no um, you know, only my promoters are going to bother responding. They, they don't know who's sponsoring the survey. And that approach, which yields apples to apples results, 
the company with the highest net promoter score is growing faster and is more profitable in, in every industry we've found. And, and if you then, it, what, what we did, I mean, I invest behind this. I've been doing this for decades. I've earned way more from investing than I have from consulting over a lifetime. And this, this notion of, well, once I know who has the highest net promoter score, I'm going to invest in those companies. And, and they've more than tripled the stock market over the decade. And the, the evidence and the names are in, the, in winning on purpose. Look in the book. You can ch- check it out. The, the other thing that I found was you do a regression of total shareholder return in an, each individual in an industry versus relative net promoter score as the explanatory variable. And you find, geez, your R squareds are 60, 70, 80. So, you know, two thirds to 80% of the variation in total shareholder return is explained by this one statistic, net promoter, which is not a financial statistic. You know, it's, it's like, give the accountants, you know, everybody knows perfect market arguments, but if you have insider data, like real NPS versus the competition, you have a, window that you have a lens that lets you see the future and that's why i invest that way and i think others who are smart are going to copy that (laughs) or or go be a customer of those companies of course and you know the the dedication of this book and the reason i wrote the book i I got sick about five years ago i got serious cancer diagnosis didn't know how long i was going to live wanted to pass these ideas on to my grandchildren who were brand new infants at the time. So the book is really a how to live your life with the insight that who you hang around with, who you build relationships with, who you're going to invest in enriching lives. Those choices are vital. And who you buy from, who you work for, who you invest in, these relationships, think carefully about them. They, They determine your life. That's very profound. And are you are you well again now? <laughs> I just went for another CT scan this morning, and uh, I feel good. Uh, we'll see. I'll, I'll get the results in a few days. But I, yeah, I've made it through the last five years, and things are are good. Thanks. And and you, we were saying earlier, you're still working, still working hard. No, more than that. I, my wife would say I'm working, but I I would say it's three quarters bane time. You know, it, which is a an aggressive you know it's back to more a relaxed hard-working life (laughs) any plans to retire no (laughs) i think what's your view on retirement then why aren't you planning to retire well i think you have to find life only makes sense to me when you can be of service and, and are valuable and you know sometimes if you can take care of your grandchildren that's the right way to be of service and sometimes it's it's other things but for me, the, the this work of helping people understand the importance of enriching customers' lives and, and overcoming the challenges to that, measuring it, systems to nurture leadership in the right directions, there's there's infinite need, and I, I it, it energizes me. So I'll do it as long as health holds out. Very good. And and one of the things I guess we controversial. You've used the term love. Love your customers. Yeah, when you get old, you can do that. When you're young, well, <laughs> people get mixed up with romantic love and all the different kinds of, you know, the Greeks wrote books on this. But yeah, love is an important idea. And I, this was a teacher in college, by the way, who, who straightened me out on this. He says, the way to think about love, Fred, is you, um, 
you have a loving relationship when most of your happiness comes from the, 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 the health and the happiness in that relationship. And so your best winning strategy is to make your partner ha- sustainable, really happy, make their life better. And, and that's, that's a loving relationship. I, within that definition, that works in business because when companies dedicate themselves to enriching the lives of customers in a sustainable way, in a way that, you know, it doesn't hurt the communities that, that are nesting that relationship, but, but, you know, living up to a set of principles, making the community stronger and primarily focusing on your partner, good stuff happens. You know, your partner appreciates that and they treat you right. And they come, you know, they tell their friends. And, and this notion of coming back for more and bringing your friends is the basis of a good business. Well, what would you call it if you don't call it love? Oh, no, I, look, I, I, th- I, think, I think it's just one of those things where you're right. If you get old, you get people just go, okay, that's fine. We're not going to give you a hard time about it. Plus, I noticed, you know, Jesus got away with it. Love thy neighbor as <laughs> thyself is, is really good advice. Now, people get into these, oh, the golden rule doesn't work anymore. Don't do what you want. Do what they want. That's the platinum rule. I said, I don't think. Jesus was not stupid. The, uh, <laughs> he got it. You know, love thy neighbor. Now, maybe it's easier to say, treat your customer the way you'd want a loved one treated. So you don't get into the selfish thing about I like pistachio and she likes butter pecan. And it, I, you know, the way you want a loved one treated is the right goal for eh, any relationship, but but customers for sure. Lots of companies have taken the net promoter question, you know, would you refer Bain and Co. to a friend or colleague? And they've said they've decided to ask it of their employees to try and come up with something they call an employee net promoter score. Yeah. What, you got any thoughts on on that? Oh, it's it's the same thing. I think the only thing I've seen bad there is you confuse employees and think the reason the boss is there is to make the employee happy. But like at Bain, our whole system is a weekly huddle-based system. And the number one question is how likely you'd recommend your team to a qualified colleague. So building a community that you'd recommend to a friend is, is spot on. You just have to recommend that a true community you'd recommend to a friend has to be dedicated to service to customers or to, to, to the person your organization exists to serve. And, and the way to make it a better place to work is partly internal stuff about how you treat each other, but it's very much how you make sure that you're enriching the lives of customers and and how can you possibly be happy in an organization that doesn't serve its customers well. And, And as long as that's the way people are thinking about it, likelihood to recommend your team, your leader, your company is a great place to work. These are powerful questions um, that lead to the right conversations. Okay. Um, Fred, is there, as you look back, is there anything you wish you'd known earlier? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I wish I had a better sense of how hard this challenge is. You know, when I started out, I thought, hmm, this will be just obvious. I can write this first book, show the economics of loyalty, and then I'll retire to the garden and just have fun. It is, it is so difficult to change the mindset of a group of people in an organization, especially when they don't even have the mindset explicit. You know, why does your company exist is a question we asked leaders at Bain. 
leaders around the world. And uh, typical businesses will say, oh, it's balanced stakeholders or we maximize shareholder value or become a great place to work. Only 10% of companies believe that their purpose, their primary purpose is to make customers' lives better. And if, if you don't think customers come first, how can you possibly do the right thing and, and act and treat them the way you treat a loved one? And it, so, yeah, it's just so much more of a challenge, decades and changes in systems and mindset. And, and um, so I wish I'd known how tough the challenge was up front. And um, I guess I would have been better at recruiting lots of other like-minded people in the world to to push this mission forward but i'm you know but i'm i now understand that and that's why i wrote the book that i did and it's great um so other than uh winning on purpose are there any or or any of your any of the other um ultimate question 2.0 or ultimate question what what else should people pick up and have a read through well, there's a series of, of books by a couple of band partners of mine that are outstanding, and they sort of reflect a Bain mindset. Bain is a special company. You, there's a full chapter in the book about the history of Bain, how it almost crashed and burned, um, how it got back, not just to semi-health, but to be one of the best in the world, in my opinion. I think the highest, highest rated company on Glassdoor as, as a great place to work for most of the last decade and in the top handful for the whole decade. Founders Mentality is a, a book that is quite strong. I like that book a lot. Yeah. I, I almost, I wouldn't hold out others better than the others, but it's a funny thing. If you see a, a Bain author, Bain doesn't really encourage us to write books. You have to fight fiercely <laughs> to be able to write a book and it, and it shows that you know, these are, these are really quality. I'd, I'd say the other thing, Going back, you know, Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, wrote some outstanding books about clear thinking and investments that that are worth everybody's time. And and the one oddball book that probably people haven't read that should, it's called The Drunkard's Walk. I can't remember the guy's name. He was a Cal, he's a Caltech professor. He was the ghostwriter for uh, Hawkins, uh, the the guy that did uh, Brief History of Time. And it shows how much of our lives are driven by probability and chance. And it, 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 it does help you to be humble because <laughs> so much is driven by uh, things outside of our control, whether you're a great movie star or a screenwriter or if you're a brilliant investor, read the book and, and you, I think, have a better sense of what actually what processes do drive the world. You've still got to be open to the luck that gets presented to you, though, don't you? Oh, faith, it, yeah, luck is governing. It, it, it's shocking. Now, you know, if you make a lot of decisions in your life about who you're, what people you're going to hang with and what relationships you're going to invest in and which, you know, you make thousands and thousands of those, luck stops playing quite as much role. But, man, for any one of those decisions panning out, uh, this is a stochastic world where you're you're rolling the dice and and luck plays in, including health. <laughs> it's everybody. Oh, why'd you get cancer? Well, you know, did you eat the wrong stuff? Well, that plays a little bit of a role, but you know, all the evidence says it's it's like ninety nine percent luck, and then one percent you can control it. Yeah. Okay. 
Fred, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.